Well, it's been a while since I've had the privilege of uh, spending some time with Christian brothers and sisters on the street doing some stranger evangelism. But this last Thursday night was uh, Pastor Aaron's uh, last time down for a while, Thursday night evangelism down in Provo. And uh, so there were a whole bunch of believers that gathered together down there that were part of the big evangelistic effort just sharing the gospel people on the street. It was a really amazing time. Well, I ran into one couple while I was down there, uh, maybe about 20 years old. Uh, Lee had just handed them a tract on one side of the street, and uh, they didn't talk with him, but they walked across to the other side. And as they were coming towards where I was, I saw uh, the young woman holding it, like looking at it back and forth and looking over her shoulder, and I thought, ooh, maybe, maybe she'd be interested in chatting. So as they came a little closer, I said, hey, so I saw you already got one of these gospel tracts. Did anyone explain that to you? And she said, no. And they both stopped there for a moment, and I said, well, can we chat about that for a minute? I said, okay. I said, I assume that your, your LDS background, you're right down there at the city center of Provo, uh, right near the temple. And they said, yeah, yeah, we are. I said, well, if you've ever met an evangelical Christian like myself, let me just ask you the question, what do you think is the biggest difference between Mormonism and Christianity? It's like my favorite question to ask LDS people on the street. Well, the young man replied without skipping a beat, like he was prepared for it. And he said, well, I think the biggest difference is that we believe you have to do works, but you believe that you can just be saved by grace and then do whatever you want, and you're still just going to be okay. Now, the way he said it was really respectful. It wasn't like he was trying to undermine uh, my beliefs. It wasn't anything like that. He was really kind about it, but he goes, I think that's the big difference. So I said to him, has anyone ever explained to you why it is that we believe that? And he's like, Go for it. So I took about maybe about the next 20 minutes and just shared the gospel with them. How we haven't contrived it out of thin air, but we believe that the Bible tells us, for by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, so that no man may boast. In other words, God worked eternal life out in such a way, our salvation in such a way that we get all the good, but he gets all the glory. No credit goes to us but only to him. None of us will be able to boast. And I spent some time sharing that with them. But as I was reflecting upon that conversation, I've had 100 conversations just like that one. I mean, almost exactly like that one. It made me realize all over again just how critical it is that we understand the relationship between grace and works. Because you see, both Mormons and Christians believe in grace and believe in works. In fact, every faith that says that it finds roots in Jesus will say they believe in grace and they believe in works. But the question is, how do those relate to each other? And if we miss the way that they relate together, we're going to miss something incredibly important. In fact, missing that might mean that you could not be a believer. You have to understand how it is those things relate. Now, the text we're about to get into right now is from Hebrews chapter 8. And if you have your Bibles, you can go to verses 7 through 12. That's where I'm going to be today, spending some time there. We're only going to cover about verses 7 through 10. The next time we're back in this, we're going to have to kind of make sure we didn't miss anything again. But I think that the text we're about to cover here provides the answers to two questions. 
Here are the two questions. Number one, with whom does God make the new covenant? And number two, what makes the new covenant different than the old? Now, just to clue you in, we're only going to get to the first one of those today. But this text is going to answer both of those things. Last week, we made it through verse 9. But there were a few things that we missed that I need to pick up on this week. So we're going to go ahead and we're going to go back to verse 7. We're going to cover through verse 12. Just read that out loud and then uh, that'll give us a running start to see where we are today. But here's why I'm bringing this up. Here's why I'm giving you this intro. I want you to know that the way that you view the new covenant in relationship with the old will very likely be incredibly helpful for your understanding of the relationship between grace and and works. So let's read this text. I'm going to pray, and then we'll go through it starting in verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we ask for your help. Please open our eyes to this text. Let us be bound to your word. Let us to have all the obstacles in our minds that might keep us from seeing this clearly. Let those obstacles be removed, Lord. Help us to see clearly what you've taught so that we would know you better, that we may love you better, that we may understand our own situation, how it is that a man may be saved. Father, help us to be bound to what you've taught. Attune our minds to your word, we ask this, Lord. Send your spirit to clarify. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Back to verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Last week, when we covered this text, and we started back just a little bit before this, we saw that the text shows us that the fault with the first covenant was not the covenant itself. So it wasn't in the terms of agreement. But they just missed something. There's loopholes. Like, the, like God had to fire his attorney and get another one to write a more airtight version later. No, it was, the problem wasn't with the covenant. The problem wasn't with God. It's never with God. But this text goes on to make it clear to us that the problem with the first covenant, the fault, was in the people. The fault was in the Israelites. It's always the case. The fault is always with us, never with God, never with his promises. God made a covenant with the people of Israel in the Old Testament. He made a covenant with them in the days of Moses when he brought them out of Egypt. That's why we call it the Mosaic Covenant because Moses was the mediator of this covenant. If you named it by its place, 
Some people refer to it as the Sinaitic Covenant because it was, it was a covenant established with the people at Mount Sinai. So it's the Sinaitic Covenant. But perhaps most important for you to realize, and something we covered a lot last week, is that this Mosaic Covenant was conditional. In other words, God said, if you do these things, then I will do this thing. Now, these things were, if you don't break my law, then I will preserve you in the land, give you the promised land, preserve you in it, and you will stay safely there. It was a conditional covenant. You break the covenant, you get kicked out of the promised land. Now, I tried to make it clear last week that the, the point of me saying that is not that they could be saved by following that covenant, by doing those works. They couldn't, no one could ever be saved by doing the works, but they could be preserved in the land. That's what the conditions were built on. And that's why when you look in the Old Testament and you see over and over and over and over again, if you, then I, if you, then I, it's always referring to this old covenant, this Mosaic covenant. If you obey, then I'll preserve you there. But this does not mean that perfection was necessary. It does not mean that if the people of God made one mistake, they'd be kicked out. No. God has always dealt graciously with his people, even in a covenant of works. He provided a way for sinful people, covenant breakers, to continue again in his covenant. How? Well, in the Old Testament, he gave them the system of sacrifice. It was a system of sacrifice designed to help atone for their sins. You know this if you've ever read through the Old Testament. You know that if a person were to have sinned, there's a way that they can make peace with God again. How? Obey the law. Well, I just broke the law. How, what do I do now? Obey the rest of the law that tells you to bring an animal, sacrifice it. That's what you do. So how do you deal with breaking the law? You follow the law again. That's how you do it. You bring a lamb. You bring a bull. You bring a turtle dove, a pigeon, a ram. A whole variety of different ways you do this, depending on how much money you had available to you, what status you were in. God provided a pretty intricate system of sacrifice that anytime someone would sin and realize his sin, that's the language of the Old Testament, when they'd realize their sin, they'd bring an animal and have it killed. They'd bring it to the priest's family, remember? God would have this animal killed, and that blood would help image for the person just how wicked their sin was, that my sin deserved death. And God provided a way for that, that death to not have to be mine, but to be that animal. And this points forward to Jesus so much that we need a sacrifice just like then, a sacrifice that can overwhelm, overcome, atone for our sins. How critical that is. And once a person had sinned and then brought a sacrifice, once the sacrifice was made, that sinner, that covenant breaker, can now continue again in the covenant. They could offer sacrifices. You might even remember that not only did God provide individual sacrifices for a person to make an individual sin, personal sin, but one day a year, on the Day of Atonement, God provided in the Old Testament law that they could have a sacrifice called the Atonement Sacrifice on the Day of Atonement for all the people, corporately. And that would cover the corporate sins of Israel, that we're all sinners. Not only that, but it would cover the unintentional sins. Did you know that? Because God's holiness is so great that even when we accidentally sin against him, that's still a sin, and it needs to be dealt with. And that's what was dealt with on the Day of Atonement. 
God dealt with our sin in that way. That's how he did it in the Old Covenant. If you were here last week, you might remember that I, I gave you a simple definition of the term covenant. Because this, this passage is all about covenant. Here's a simple definition. A covenant is an agreement which brings about a relationship of commitment between two parties. I'll say that again. A covenant is an agreement which brings about a relationship of commitment between two parties. Not a contract, like a real estate contract, where you might have zero relationship with the other person who signed on the contract, but more like marriage vows, that kind of covenant. Just like in a marriage, if you make a vow that establishes that relationship together, if you make a vow to love and to cherish your spouse, but one day you fail, that does not make you no longer married. Follow that? You apologize, you reconcile, and you continue in that covenant. Covenant doesn't go away because of fault. In fact, marriage vows do not expect a road with no bumps. This is a helpful illustration. God uses this illustration, both Old and New Testament, to help us understand the nature of covenant. Marriage vows do not expect a road with no bumps. Marriage vows provide the shocks that you will need to absorb the impact of the bumps. That's why marriage vows include things like in good times and in bad, in sickness and in health. That's why. Because no, no pastor worth his salt would, in the middle of a, of a, of a ceremony of marriage, say, because everything's going to go great. No. When it doesn't go great, you're committing to stick it out. Similarly, the problem with the Old Covenant was not merely that the people became sinful. They were always sinful. They were sinful while God was making the covenant with them. I want to draw you back to the story. Remember for a moment what happens after Moses brings the people out of the land of Egypt. He brings them to Mount Sinai. He goes up onto the mountain to make this, uh, this, this covenant. He's going to uh, literally have tablets of stone that God's going to write the law on. He's getting this law. He goes up for 40 days, and he's going to come back down, and he's going to give this, deliver the law to the people. While that covenant is being prepared with the people, what do the people do? They begin whoring after other gods. They begin false worship. Aaron, the high priest of the day, takes, he takes gold, and he, he throws it in the fire. He says, oh, I just became a calf. And they start worshiping this calf in revelry. Moses comes down, he hears the sound of triumph and celebration and revelry in the camp. He's like, it sounds like the sound of war. Comes down there with Joshua. And when they see what's happening, Moses throws the tablets down, shatters them. Why? In the midst of the covenant making, they were already prostituting themselves in false worship. So God sends Moses back up on the mountain. And what does he do? Does he now amend that law? Okay, that didn't work. New law, new law now. No, he goes back up, makes an exact replica of that first one, brings it back down, and establishes it with the people. The problem of the Old Covenant was that the people who entered it, even those who bore the signs, all the outward signs the Old Covenant had to offer, they did not love and honor God, and they had no intention of loving him. One fault of the Old Covenant was that the people could enter into it without having any genuine love for God. I'm going to read to you Matthew 23. 
just a portion of it, 23 through 28. This is where Jesus is preaching against the Pharisees. These are the, these are the top-notch representative Jews of his day. If you were to grab a super Jew, a super Israelite, and be like, that's, that's the best representation of us. In that day, the people would have pointed to the Pharisees. No one followed the law more fully. No one continued in the covenant more fully in the eyes of the people. They brought sacrifices. They tithed on mint and dill and cumin and all these things. Listen to what Jesus says to these Pharisees. He says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within... You're full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness, so you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. This is a central fault of the Old Covenant. That's the line here. There was something faulty about the Old Covenant. These people didn't keep it. And what was this fault? It could never purify the heart. All the blood of the bulls and the goats. It couldn't actually take away sin. To put it another way, being in the old covenant didn't save anyone. No one was saved on the basis of their being in the old covenant. Lots of people were in the old covenant who ended up going to hell. Like a man who makes marriage vows with a woman he does not love, fully intending to cheat on her whenever he desires... Under Moses, a person could be in covenant with God and still hate him. That was the fault of the Old Covenant. The problem was the people. And in the end, hell will be filled with many people who were part of the Old Covenant. Had all the outward signs. And so God promised to make another covenant. A better covenant. A covenant that, unlike the first one, would be faultless. Let's look at it. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenants I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. I said before that I think this passage answers two questions. Here's one. The next one will answer kind of here and, and into the next couple of verses. The first question, with whom will God make this new covenant? Well, it says it right here, doesn't it? Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, in order to understand the significance of this, you need to know a bit about what happened to the nation of Israel after the time of Moses. After those days. 
after Moses dies, the people enter into the promised land, led by Joshua. And they begin to conquer it. And they do all this conquering by God's miraculous help. But they're never quite willing to obey God and follow all of his law. They don't quite get all the courage needed. They don't quite purge the entire land. And so, for the next four centuries, they endure conflict between them and their much stronger neighbors. Philistines, the Amalekites, the Midianites, so on. Eventually, after these, this period of the judges, the people come together and they cry out to God for a king. But God warns them through the prophet Samuel of how poorly it'll go. Because first of all, you already have a king, but they don't want, they don't want Jesus as king. They don't want God as king. They want an earthly king. They want to look like the nations around them. Give us one of those. Samuel warns them, don't you know what will happen if I give you a king? He'll steal your women and your children. He'll take your sons and your daughters. He'll excise taxes and take you to war and bring burdens upon you. And what, he, he might rule wickedly and you'll be under him. What are you going to do? And even in spite of that warning about how poorly it'll go for them, at the end, they want a king anyway, and so he gives them one. This first king is King Saul. King Saul on the outside looked exactly like a king ought to look. It said that he was head above everyone else around him. He's taller than all the other people, and he was a handsome man. Tall and handsome, Saul. People would look and say, surely that guy's a king. And Saul is effectively the first king of Israel. He unites the people under his leadership, under his rule. He brings them into one. So the nation of Israel now looks like the nations around them. They have a king. They're unified. They have a single system of government. They have a standing army operated under, operating under King Saul. But Saul, in his lifetime, is never quite able to get all the people to unite under his leadership. There's always a group who's outside of Saul's leadership, that even will fight against him sometimes. King Saul dies in battle, and he's succeeded by David. David, of course, is that David of David and Goliath fame. Kills, kills Goliath, the giant Philistine, with a single stone, cuts off his head, wins battle after battle after battle. He is a man after God's own heart. But David is a sinner, just like the rest. And David has been tainted by this sin. But different than Saul, David repents of his sin, cries out to God, worships the Lord, and he does what the Old Covenant says. He brings sacrifices when he sins, more than he needs to. He hates his sin. He cries out to God, and he's forgiven. David is the image in the New Testament of a forgiven sinner over and over and over again. This David had such zeal for God that God said that he would establish a covenant with David. Now, this covenant was unique in that it wasn't with a whole bunch of people. It was actually with one guy. It was with David, but it would certainly affect the people, and it would certainly affect all of us even, because the covenant that God makes with David is that I will raise up a successor, someone in your line, one of your sons down the line, who will be raised up to power. I will put him on the seat of authority, and he will be the ultimate, final, complete, and absolute king. And he will reign forever. And that king, of course, 
is the Messiah, the son of David, Jesus. Well, David's son who succeeds him as king after him, his name is Solomon. Could this be the son of David? Made pretty clear, Solomon follows into some of the same folly as his father, but he even goes further. Solomon begins to whore after false gods. He literally worships them. He builds temples of these false gods in Jerusalem and in the area. He lets the power and prestige of being a king go to his head. He's not that son of David. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, gets even greedier. He gets greedier for even more power, prestige, and wealth than his father had. And so God, in his day, splits the nation of Israel into two kingdoms, northern and southern. It's literally like if you were to look at a map of Israel. It's almost a halfway split, northern and southern. You might remember that there were 12 tribes of Israel. And even though the property tended to cover about half and half northern and southern kingdoms, the 10 tribes get put into the north, and there are two in the south, and it's split. There's a divided kingdom, and this divided kingdom will be called the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. That's what they'll be called. Sometimes Ephraim, sometimes Joseph, the northern kingdom will be called. The southern one is Judah, Israel and Judah, those two kingdoms. And over the next several centuries, there will be 19 kings of Israel in the north and 19 kings in the south in Judah until we get to Jeremiah the prophet. Jeremiah the prophet will give this prophecy that's being cited here in Hebrews chapter 8. 19 kings of each have come before him. None of them have been able to unite Israel back together. Most of them didn't even try. Most of them were warring against each other. One worse than the next. And over and over and over, we see none of those kings are that son of David. None of them are. All of them fail. All of them lead us astray. All of them are wicked. And even with the glimmers of hope, even with a few kind of good kings that show up and do something good, they're not enough. And they never do quite bring this together. I want you to look at this again. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. God's going to bring these two together again. See, that's the plan. Ezekiel 37 tells us a very famous teaching. In fact, if you live in Utah, you might have heard this teaching before about the two sticks because the prophet Ezekiel is told that there are two sticks. There's, a, there's one stick and another that will be united into one. A lot of our neighbors see that as there's, there's a, a kind of a Bible testimony and there's a testimony of the Book of Mormon and they'll be brought together. But that passage says explicitly, it's talking about the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah brought together into one all over the Old Testament that said over and over and over and over again. That's the plan. A new covenant's coming. And God, under King, King David, the real King David, that son of David, the king of kings and lord of lords, will he make this covenant with these combined? These come together. Now, Jeremiah shows up. And he prophesies during a time when the people of God are being utterly obliterated. The Assyrians have already destroyed the people in the north. In the south, there's already been thousands marched off to Babylon. And shortly after, he promises this from God that a new covenant will come someday. A new covenant will be established that will bring those houses together. In 586 B.C., the people of God are finally kicked out of the land. 
and the remaining thousands are taken into Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, I made a big point of this last week, but I'm just going to say it kind of quickly here. God was not surprised by this. In fact, he, he prophesied that it would certainly happen. All of you are going to fail. You're going to be marched out of your own towns. Everything's going to go terribly. They're going to destroy you and your children and your women. They're going to march everybody out. And the nations around are going to look. And you know what they're going to say? Let me read this for you in Deuteronomy 29. This is written all the way back in the days of Moses, long before David. When the nations observe the judgment of Israel, Deuteronomy 29, 24, all the nations will say, why has the Lord done thus to the land? What caused the heat of his great anger? Then people will say, it is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers. So even the onlookers will say, we know why this terrible stuff has happened to Israel. We know why Judah has been crushed. Because they did not obey the covenant. Moses, who wrote that, will go on to say this. In prophecy of these Israelites, they have dealt corruptly with him, their God. They are no longer his children. Because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. That's what Moses prophesies about Israel. They will no longer be his children when that day comes. But the story of Israel was not quite over yet. You see, God would have mercy on his people yet again. Centuries of mercy, undeserved. He would bring these people after 70 years in exile. He would bring them back to the land. But even after they get back to the land, they rebuild a temple. They, they go back to the Mosaic Covenant. They try to start living according to it again. They worship the way that God has told them to worship. They try to continue in that covenant. And they stumble through that for the next few centuries. And even as they do that, Israel and Judah are still not united. So this has still not happened. And 500 years after Jeremiah's time, 500 years after that people returned from exile, God fulfills the promise he made to David. He sends them a new David. He sends them that son of David. He sends them the Messiah, Jesus, who comes, the true king of kings. What do the people do? They reject him. And they kill the son of David. That was the last straw for Israel. All of these prophecies in the Old Testament about the ultimate destruction and then about the coming new covenant that will finally unite, nobody was able to unite. And even in one last moment of wickedness, the worst, most idolatrous apostasy that ever happened in all of Israel's history was that they killed the Son of God. That was the apex. And all the Old Testament promises of destruction are leveled against that twisted and crooked generation. Jesus explained this in Matthew chapter 21 in a parable. It's called the parable of the tenants. And he says, imagine a master who purchased some property, turned it into a vineyard, and turned it over to some tenants to work it. While he's away in a foreign land, he sends some messengers to go get the fruit of their labor, the, the, the portion that was due to the master. And they beat those messengers and sent them out. So he sent more messengers, and they beat those messengers and kicked them out. 
And so the master says, I know what I'll do. I'll send my son. Surely they will respect him. The master sends the son. If you remember the parable, what happens? You don't even have to remember the parable. It sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? What did they do to the only son? Killed him. They killed the son. And it was premeditated. They thought, if we kill the son, we'll get, we'll get the whole vineyard. It'll be ours. That's exactly what the Pharisees did. They knew darn well what they were doing. They, they, they conspired to lie about the resurrection. They knew Jesus was doing works that only God could do, and they hated him for it because they were jealous for his authority. They were jealous for his influence and for his power. They wanted that kingdom. Jesus challenges these Pharisees who are hearing the parable being told. And he says, what will the master do when he finds out that they've killed the son? And they answered rightly. Every once in a while, those Pharisees got it right. Their answer in return is, he will take those wretches and bring them to a miserable end. And then he will take the vineyard from those tenants and give them to a new one, a new tenant. Jesus replies by saying this. Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Throughout all of Jesus' ministry, he continually prophesies the ultimate and final destruction of these people of Israel that will culminate by the end of that generation in the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. This is unmistakable when you read Matthew 24. And Jesus says, this generation will suffer for it because this generation is the one who has finally gone so far as to kill the Son of God. And he preaches this destruction against them. And when 70 AD happens, Josephus, as he recounts, says 100% of Jews gone, either killed or enslaved, like never before. After 70 AD, it's not hard to see how Judaism is no more. What you see today as modern Judaism is not Bible Judaism. It's entirely different. It's an entirely new made religion because they don't have the ceremonial law to build on. They don't have the temples. They don't have the priesthood. They don't have the prophets. They don't have the people. They don't even know what family lineage they come from anymore. New day Judaism is not the same because it's been gone off the planet since 70 AD. And yet, Jeremiah prophesies. When I establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So what does he mean? Who then is the Israel and Judah being referred to in Jeremiah's prophecy? Answer, true Israel. True Israel. God promised that he would bring all of his people together under a new covenant. When was the new covenant established? We just had communion as a church here together. Do you remember what Jesus said when he held up the, the cup? What did he say it was? My blood. In what? A new covenant. Jesus ratifies a new covenant. The people in that day, in Hebrews' day, all the way up to now, were under a new covenant with Jesus. A new covenant established. And it was in that day that he made a covenant with house of Israel and the house of Judah. God has brought all of his people together under a new covenant. This is why you and I, Gentiles, presumably, can have full access to God's promises 
Because as Ephesians says, the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile has been broken down. God has made the two men into one. John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 through 10 says, When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to, from these stones, raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This is what Jesus says throughout his ministry, like places in John 15, where he says that he has pruned off the fruitless vines, the godless Israelites who had all the outward signs, who said that they followed the Mosaic covenant, but they could not continue in it because they did not actually love God. He has broken off the natural branches of the olive tree because of their unbelief. And we, even the wild branches, Gentiles, can be grafted in through faith, it says in Romans 11. The Apostle Paul writes this in Galatians chapter 3. He says, there is, this is a crazy sentence, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. This, of course, this does not preclude bloodlines or gender or even roles in society, but it says that our status before God is not determined by such things. How can you be considered an offspring of Abraham? By being in Christ. You're in Christ, you're an Israelite. You're a true Jew. True Israel has been brought together. Israel, house of Judah, brought together in the new covenant day. The old covenant was filled with outward signs. They weren't wicked. The outward signs were not wicked. It was right to do those outward signs under the old covenant. But the people began to rely on those signs. You remember this, don't you? How Jesus would literally point to the Pharisee who stood in the marketplace so that everyone would see his prayers and he'd pray out loud with big grandiose gestures so that everyone would know, wow, that must be a man of God over there. He's talking out loud. We can see him do this. What does Jesus say? Don't be like that guy. Go into a closet. Pray where no one sees you because it's not about the reliance of outward signs. It's not that you look good to everyone else. Therefore, you must be okay on the inside. So back to our question, with whom does God establish the new covenant? It is not those who have the mark of outward signs, but true Israel, who has not a circumcision made by hands, but a circumcision made without hands. God does this. God establishes the covenant. With who? With his people, all who have faith in him. If you believe in Jesus, you are in the new covenant by that faith. You do not have to be Jewish in order to be saved. And while this doesn't seem crazy to us, it was unthinkable for these New Testament people to, to realize, wait, 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 wait. You don't have to have something outward that you rely upon that points to who you really are? Look at the next verse. 
For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. Real, real quick, real quick. You notice he started before, he's gonna make a covenant with, he's gonna bring Israel and Judah together. Now he just calls them house of Israel. Why? Because that's one household of God now. They've been made into one. It's no longer Israel and Judah, it's now just Israel. Israel through faith. And after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. If you have the law of God in your mind and on your heart, you are one of God's people. It says right here that they will have the laws etched in their minds. God will write them on their hearts. This is significant because if you were to look back at Deuteronomy chapter six, God would tell the people back then that the law mattered. And that you should think about it so much. He actually said to have it, have it in front of your foreheads, in front of your eyes. He says, put it on your doorpost. Did you know that even today, Orthodox Jews will take a little scroll where they put the Shema, the, the, that, that line from uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. They'll take that, roll it up in a scroll, and put it in a little box that they hang on their hat. Search it. Phylacteries, what they're called. They still do it today. They put it on the fringes of their robes so that they would try to symbolize literally what the text was saying. In fact, they would take that same little scroll and put it inside a little, little uh, a metal uh, kind of object that they'd put on the doorpost of their house called a mezuzah. They're in every hotel room in Israel today. Okay, every house in Israel. You walk in, you'll see all of them there because they took that literally. And they had these outward signs. Those people hate Jesus. They hate him. They reject their Messiah. They want nothing to do with him. The land of Israel today is full of atheists, agnostics, and Jesus haters. But they wear the phylacteries. They have the mezuzahs. You see, the old covenant that was riddled with signs that were not wrong. It was not wrong to do those things. I don't believe but people relied on those while hating God. You see that? This is like the man who boldly displays his wedding ring while committing adultery on repeat. Look, I'm married, I'm married, I'm married. And then does, what? Yes, the symbol should be meaningful. Yes, it should be significant. But it has no significance insofar as a person rejects the covenant that they made with God. That's what has happened in the old covenant. And God says, it won't be like that. The new covenant's not going to be like that. The outward things you just have out here that someone will just go, oh, look, I see that, I see that, I see that. Check, you're good, you're good, you're in. I will put my laws into their minds. I will do it, God says. And I will write them on their hearts. Where was the law of God etched in the Old Testament? On stone. And now he etches and unto our hearts. For many people, those outward signs, that was as deep as the law went for them. They didn't love God. It was only about signs. But we, today, because of Jesus, can enter into the new covenant not by outward signs, but by a gracious act of God. Not by works, but according to faith. Let me summarize and close with saying this. Just a couple more minutes. Our gospel does not rely on outward signs. It doesn't rely on that. And a person might say, well, Rich, what about communion? We just did that. What about baptism? Don't people in the New Testament get baptized? What about all the good works that Jesus commands for us to do? And he commands a lot of good works. 
This is easy. If you rely on those works, if you rely on those signs, if you rely on communion, the Lord's Supper, if you rely on your baptism, if you rely on those works as though they are what makes peace with God, you are under a curse. You're under the curse of the law. You see, this is one of the things that makes virtue signaling so disgusting to Christians. We hate virtue signaling. Why? Because our gospel preaches the opposite about make things look good on the outside, but on the inside, it's wicked. Consider it for a minute. I don't know if you've heard about this group of abortion protesters who arrested in Washington, D.C. a couple days ago. You know what? You know why a couple people were, were arrested? Because they had the gall to write black preborn lives matter in chalk. Why were they arrested? I'll tell you why. Because those protesters did not follow the letter of the law. That's why. When a narrative from the world is given that you must show the outward sign, if you tweak it a little bit, you're a heretic in the eyes of the world. But you see, this is why Christians hate this stuff. The whole world is about make the outside look right. Who cares about the inside? Just make the outside look that way. Celebrities left and right will put things on their Instagram or tweet things, and you know they don't believe it. They'll talk about how much they hate guns. Well, then why did you make $100 million last year killing people on the screen? You tell people that you hate when little girls are put in sex trafficking? Then why do you have all this disgusting stuff that you put on the screens to glorify sexuality? You lose all credibility. But in the eyes of the world, that's the way they roll. Outward signs is all that matters. In fact, you putting up just the right post online. Who cares what you really believe is what they want. As believers, we abhor that stuff. Listen, if you really care about those kinds of issues, it'll show long time. You watch a person's life and it will show if a person actually cares about truth. They actually care about justice. They actually care about those things. We don't care what the world thinks about us. We don't look to them and say, give us, a, give us a grade. Tell us how good we align to your outward signs. We don't do the outward signs thing for them. We clean the inside. But the outside may also be clean. Brothers and sisters, you must understand the relationship between grace and works. You have got to understand the cart and the horse. You've got to understand that we are saved by grace through faith. And what happens next? We do all these wonderful things that we couldn't have possibly done from within our heart before because our heart used to be too wicked to do it. We do not reject works. We love good works. We ache to do good works. But we are wary of those things ever becoming outward signs that we get applause from the world. And we must never rely upon them. Guys, this may seem small because if you've heard the gospel of Jesus before, and this is just the same thing over and over because we love this. But the, this gospel of the new covenant, the new covenant, blew the doors off of the world. It lit the world on fire and it hasn't gone out since. And one of the ways it did this is because the gospel was offered freely to every person in the world. We offer the gospel not only to the good workers, not only to those who we see have done outward signs that make us think that all things are okay, but to those who have nothing good to offer. The world has never recovered from this gospel. It never will. You cannot overestimate the impact this has had on history. 
Christ Church will advance without fail in the face of every conceivable opposition. Were you ready for 2020? God was, and his church will endure. Our gospel of grace is designed for a world just like this. If you're a believer today, you've got to get this understanding right. That your works are not something that you do out here to make God happy with you again. That your works are not outward signs that get you praise from others around you. You ought to hate that stuff. You ought to rely never on your works to have peace with God, but rely on God, on his grace, on his covenant offered to us for nothing on the outside, just because he is good. And if you're not a believer today, you need to repent of your sins and turn in faith to Jesus, not by your works, in such a way that there's nothing that you can boast. You need to turn your life over to him. You need to believe in what the gospel says. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We are grateful for this word from the book of Hebrews. We pray that you would help us to understand this thing. Lord, it may take our entire lives to to help clarify in all the instances of a day what it looks like for us to rely not on works, but on grace, to understand the relationship between grace and works. Lord, help us as we try to discover the relationship between the old covenant and the new. Help us to expose in our minds errors in the way we view works and grace. Father, we need your help with this because it makes no sense in the eyes of the world, but it makes every sense to those who believe. Help us to mine out the errors. Help us to believe what is true, to worship you in light of it, and to share it with others. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.